So you think about what's my story going to be like? Is it going to be that I finally, you know, got the thing that I wanted to buy? And how is that going to sound in the context of heaven? Or is it going to be the times where we are totally dependent on God and can see his power through us as we go through life? The missionary life. What is it? And who does this kind of thing? Welcome to the Inlander podcast, where we explore the missionary journey through interviews with people serving across a spectrum of places and ministries. Men and women who have left good jobs, sold homes, and said goodbye to the comfortable and familiar, all in answer to Christ's call to share his love among the nations. From remote desert outposts to the bustling streets of some of Africa's busiest urban centers, we look at what it means to pack up a life and follow Christ to the ends of the earth. Welcome to the Inlander podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today we have a very special guest, Ted. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be here. So we got to start off with knowing how many years you've been with Africa Inland Mission. My wife and I uh, joined in 2001 in January, so this will be 21 years. Wow, that is so exciting. I know you've held a few different roles with Africa Inland Mission, and so I would just love to hear the beginning part of your journey and where you started out. I think you started with AIM Air. It did. We first came out as a pilot family with AIM Air. And uh, so that's kind of how we got started with AIM. It's what drew us to uh, AIM, really. So what did that journey look like? Were you just missionary pilot at the beginning? Yeah. When uh, when we were in college, my wife was uh, also an aviator and she had completed her mechanics training and was transitioning into flight. I was a year ahead of her. And one of the big questions of the time was, what do mission organizations do with female pilots? And we had some organizations that said, well, you know, where we fly, women aren't given the, the, the amount of authority that they need to exercise their 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 job as a pilot so it just wouldn't work but then other organizations would say well you know we have women pilots in those same locations and it works fine so we were getting all these mixed messages and uh, we 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 weren't sure you know where we were going to go and we went to the we went to visit different groups and we went to visit AIM and, uh, and there were a couple of guys there. Uh, Sam Thomas was one of them. I know he's been on this podcast before. And we kind of put it on the table. We're both going to be uh, pilots. And can this organization use that? And we had kind of laid out a fleece before that. We thought we would like to hear not only that it would work, but we would like to hear specific locations where it would work right now. And the, the group of guys that were there, they, they kind of huddled together when they heard we were go, both going to be pilots. And they said, well, yeah, that would work. That would work in Mwanza. That would work in Bunya and like three or four different locations. And so it was a, it was a pretty clear direction at that point that we needed to start considering AIM Air. And so that's, that's kind of how it started. Wow, that is awesome. I had no idea your wife was also a pilot. Well, after that, she she didn't actually finish her uh, her training at Moody, so she completed her mechanics training, but then didn't actually uh, go into flight. So, um, so we're both mechanics, but she's she's not a pilot. Yeah. So, what was your first term, your first assignment like? 
Uh, and where did you end up? We lived up on a volcano in northern Kenya, just south of the Ethiopian border. So we lived among the Samburu people, very rural, two days of driving to get there from Nairobi. And the, the second day, we would travel like 180 miles in 10 hours. So if you do the math, that's an 18 mile an hour average. The roads were that bad. And so, you know, that just kind of shows how needed the airplane was. So we lived up on the volcano and solar panels, the whole bit. It was cool weather because of the elevation, but we were surrounded by desert in, in every direction. What was it like living on a volcano? That is crazy. <laughs> well, thankfully, it was a dormant volcano, so we never had any rumblings or eruptions or, or things like that. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty rugged terrain. Uh, I had one flight where to drive to this village, it was just at the base of the volcano, but to drive there took three hours because the road went down the other side of the volcano. Then you had to go around through gullies and things like that. But to fly, you would take off and then just drop and it would take like six minutes and 30 seconds. And then you were at the other airstrip. But then, of course, you had to fly back up and circle around and, and sometimes passengers thought that was hard. Just the passengers, not the pilot. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh, it was great for pilots. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so living among the Samburu people, operating your own remote flight location with AIM Air, what's a favorite story or memory that comes to mind from that time? Well, we did a lot of medical-related flying, and there was one time when we got a call, there was a lion attack victim up in Sololo, which is just on the border of Ethiopia. So I flew up there and we didn't have the doctor there with us at the time. So I was going to have to fly all the way to the Catholic hospital, which was halfway between us and Nairobi, all the way to the south. So I landed and there was a male nurse and then the, the lion attack victim. They had a clinic there. So he was lying on this stretcher with an IV. So we worked for a while, got him in the airplane. And then the nurse started talking to me and telling me how to change the wound drainage bag. And I, I said, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm the pilot, you're the nurse, you change the wound drainage bag. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm not going with. And I said, oh, yes, you are. And he said, no, I can't, I can't go. And I said, well, I'm not leaving unless you come with. I can't be tending to the patient and flying the airplane too. At first he says, well, the wound drainage bag is going to last about 30 minutes. And he says, well, how long is the flight? And I said, well, the flight's at least 45 minutes. And he says, he'll probably make it. And I said, no, no, you're coming with me or I'm not going. And he said, okay, okay. So he turns and he gives the stack of uh, materials he has to the guy standing next to him. And then he takes off running as fast as he can away. And everyone around the plane, because there's always a crowd around the airplane, looks at me and says, you know, thinks, what's he going to do? Of course, there's only one thing to do. You know, that man only has one chance to live, and that's to get him to the hospital as fast as I can. So I took off and I flew that airplane as fast as I could, which is, you know, it's it's kind of a a slow airplane. So, you know, the difference between as fast as you can and normal is about you know, three miles per hour, but we make it to the hospital and the guy was doing pretty good when I left him. So I think, I think he was okay, but it was kind of a lesson in decision-making and what do you do? What do you do in a, in a difficult situation? But from a cultural perspective, you know, if I, you know, it's easy for me to insist that he comes with me in hindsight, looking back, you know, how's he going to get home again? He, he can't afford that. There wasn't really a path forward for him to come with me. Yeah, sometimes you're kind of in some difficult situations. Wow, that is a crazy story. And I can imagine very stressful at the time, but it's really cool to be able to look back and, and see how the culture played into it. Now, what's another story that comes to mind living on this volcano during this time? One story I think is kind of cool is when we first arrived up in northern Kenya, northern Kenya has some unique creatures, you could call them, 
scorpions and snakes and spiders and things like that. But they have this one species of spider that it goes by different names, but some people call them a, a hunting spider. And they are huge. I mean, they are, they're so big that they set off mouse traps. And they also are, I think they have the distinction of being the fastest living creature on earth relative to size. They can run 50 body lengths per second and no other creature can do that. I mean, they run so fast that you can hardly see them with your eyes when they're moving. So as you can imagine, they're uh, pretty evil looking and pretty intimidating. They don't build webs. They don't need webs. They just chase down their prey and, and, and eat it. So one night, this was like in our orientation when we first got there and we were living out with a missionary family in the deserts. We had two little boys and Lisa and I were, you know, we got them all tucked into bed. They had the little pack and plays with the little mosquito net over it. And we had a bed with a mosquito net hanging down, but it was two twin beds kind of pushed together. And so you would tuck in the mosquito net, but there was the, that crack in the middle of the two twin beds that was just open to the floor. And that was a little creepy. Anyway, so I go to turn off the light by the door and Lisa's already under the mosquito net and I see a little moth fluttering on top of, you know, outside the mosquito net and on the mosquito net itself on the outside is this huge hunting spider slowly crawling up. He's, he's chasing the moth. And I thought I got to get that spider because I don't want that spider in the room with that crack in the bed all night. I'm going to be thinking about it. So I'm in my flip flops. And I walk over, you know, I don't have a lot of time to make a plan, but my plan was this. I was going to take my flip-flop off and swing at the mosquito net. But, you know, mosquito net, there's no substance there. You can't kill it up against the mosquito net. So I was going to swing it and hit it up against the wall and then smack it on the wall. That was my plan. So I walked up, I took my shoe off and I swung. But when I swung, I caught too much mosquito net in the swing and the whole mosquito net came crashing down off the ceiling on top of Lisa, who was now screaming. The hunting spider was trying to do its thing and escape, but there's this huge fluffy pile of mosquito net, so it can't get any traction, and it's just wavering. And meanwhile, the flip-flop had flown out of my hand, and so I didn't have anything in my hands, but I knew the hunting spider was getting away, so I had one chance to in that situation well and I jumped on the bed and smacked it with my hand and it flipped over and curled up its legs and it looked like a mouse sitting there so that was the uh the story of the the hunting spider but we still we still didn't get much sleep that night anyway that is my worst nightmare that I just heard that I've never heard of the hunting spider <laughs> I'm like I'm scared of it I've never even seen a photo man Living life in a volcano with huge spiders, that is not for the weak. <laughs> That's all I can say. Oh my goodness, that is crazy. So what was it like living among the Samburu people as you did aviation? We were, we were full-time pilots. So we would, we lived with the Samburu people and we would, you know, we took roles in the church just as, you know, church members and we would take part, but mostly we were, you know, an aviation family. So, I mean, half the time I would fly off the mountain and I wasn't even with the Samburu anymore. Uh, Lisa focused more on the Samburu language because she would have friends among the Samburu. Uh, some of the ladies didn't know English or Swahili. They only knew Samburu. And so she kind of concentrated on that. Whereas as soon as I flew off the mountain, you know, Samburu wouldn't really do me any good. So I focused more on, on the Swahili. But we were, yeah, we were full-time aviators and then just community members among the, among the Samburu. Yeah. So how long did y'all end up staying there? Uh, we lived up on the mountain for about six years. And how old were your kids at the time? Yeah. In fact, we, uh, we came to Africa with, with two and um, our youngest turned two on the airplane over to Africa. So we had two little boys while we were there. Uh, our daughter was born while we were there and she was born at Kajabi. And then that period kind of ended uh, when my fourth was born. He was born in, in Nairobi. That kind of ended the, the time with flying and started the time with the, the media department. Speaking of the media department, 
Walk us through the beginning of that. What was the shift from being a aviator to focusing on media? And yeah, how did that vision come into existence? I had a hobby of video, you know, producing videos. And, and that kind of started even before we got to Africa. We were raising support uh, to go to Africa. And like a lot of people, I think I was kind of struggling with the idea of raising support of of asking people to be generous uh, so that we could follow God's will to Africa and then realizing that really wasn't what we were doing. We were giving people opportunity to walk in obedience to the Great Commission. And if it had been the former, if we were just asking people to be nice, then, you know, the obligation after the fact is pretty minimal. You know, you write your thank you notes and you go on your way. But if we're in helping people to engage in the Great Commission, well, that's that speaks of a team. And if if we have a team behind us, then, you know, there's going to be a, a significant task of communicating what you're doing to your team. And I was thinking, how do we how do we do that? How do we keep people connected with what we're doing, uh, our team members? And I remember the moment I was Lisa was getting her hair cut in the mall and I was holding uh, one of our two boys and right next to the haircutting place was an electronic store with cameras and things like that. And I thought, that's it. I got to buy one of these video cameras. I knew enough even then that, you know, it wasn't just about buying a video camera and hoping it works. You had to learn about editing. You had to learn about visual storytelling. So I started just digging into that. Even by the time we went to Africa, you know, the point was just to make videos for our church, for our supporters. And when we got there, we realized, obviously, every other missionary has that same need. And few of them had the time or the ability to, you know, put together a five-minute or two-minute cohesive presentation of their ministry. So word got out that that I could do that. And so we started doing that kind of as a hobby we would take a vacation and go visit a mission family out somewhere and spend a week with them and learn about them and, you know, try and capture this love that's pouring out from them to the local people and ask the questions, you know, where is this coming from? And we started to realize that, you know, everything that fulfilled us as a pilot family and helping people and being kind of the behind the scenes support for them was present in, in the work of producing media for them. And we could walk away feeling fairly intimate in the knowledge of what they do and are able to pray for them and kind of, in a sense, feel like we're shoulder to shoulder with them. So that was kind of a hobby the whole time I was a pilot. And Mike kind of had the similar, uh, the same hobby, but down in Nairobi. And we started talking together and, and he started asking the question, you know, AIM kind of needs this sort of thing, not just where we are, but in all the 22 different countries where AIM works. So we found this guy, uh, I think Mike found the guy in the Bible named Tychicus. He's in you know, Colossians 4, 7. He's in Ephesians and, and maybe Titus or a couple other places. And Tychicus is a guy that Paul describes as a fellow worker and a faithful servant. Kind of a, a key player, actually. But he sends Tychicus along with Onesimus at times to do some important communications and uh, you know, sometimes he wrote letters, obviously Paul wrote a lot of letters, but sometimes he felt that this communication of doing two things, he said, one, to tell the church what God is doing on, on his missionary journeys and to encourage their hearts. And he felt that was so important that he didn't just send letters. He sent someone who he kind of had described as a key player of the team because that it was that important. And what struck us was also that this was not the church checking up on the missionary and this was the missionary's initiative to tell these stories to the church. So we thought, you know, it, it would be good if we had a field-based media team, a team of missionary storytellers, uh, where we could tell the story of what God is doing uh, in Africa to, to the Western church. And so that's kind of where the idea started. I hadn't really ever wanted to do anything except be a missionary pilot since I was like second grade. So this is a pretty big transition for me. But interestingly, when we started thinking about doing this, we had a couple other families join AMER and look at our program and pull us aside and say, you know, if you guys ever start wanting to do anything else, we would love to come and take your place up on the volcano there. 
so we started considering that, you know, if we stop flying, well, there'll be others that will take our place, but no one is, is, is doing the media work. And so ultimately we ended up uh, stopping flying and starting uh, on field media. Wow. That's so cool how it just started as a, oh, this is something I need to do for my family, which this would be great for my church to show my supporters what's going on in my ministry, and then just has blossomed to this organizational-wide media outreach. I mean, it's it's awesome to see. And so what was that first year, the building process of on-field media? Well, it was it was kind of surprising in a number of different ways. I mean, I had never led a creative team before, you know, my creative art, so to speak, was just all by myself. And, you know, doing that in a team setting is very different, but the Lord brought together some pretty amazing individuals, Andy Brown and Mike DiLorenzo and, and, and Mike Psalm. And so it was, I think due to the, you know, the Lord kind of working in very different people with very different talents you know, for a while it was kind of Andy and I, and he was the true artist. You know, I was only about half an artist and half an engineer. Together when we worked, you know, we brought different things to the table and we produced things that neither one of us could have done by ourselves. And then of course, Mike gradually started to become more and more active. And then he brought his own brilliance as well. But one of the things I think that was amazing and different to us than we thought was the fact that, you know, Lisa and I had a bit of a heart towards Muslim people while we were there. And we don't really know where it came from because the San Buddha people are not Muslim. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're monotheistic and they, they do believe in spirits, but they're not Muslim. And they, we had a mosque on the volcano, but there was a minority of people that went. But we felt like, you know, if we ever stopped flying, it would probably be in the direction of Muslim work. So when this media work became clearly what God was leading us towards. It felt like kind of a step in the opposite direction because we just couldn't imagine waving a camera around in a Muslim context. We thought, okay, you know, I, I don't know what this heart was, but we're going to have to set that aside for now and and proceed in the in the clear direction of, of, of media. Wouldn't you know that in the first year of OFM, I think half or more of our requests for video were in Muslim contexts. And so we totally found ourselves, you know, going into Islamic countries. The first country we went to that was an Islamic country, totally closed. And we went and there was a doctor there and he was leading a team and we were there to kind of document uh, that team. So we arrived and one day the doctor and I got in his truck and we were headed into town to run some errands. And as soon as we left the house, the neighbor came running up to the door. And so he talked to the doctor and I didn't understand what they were saying, but the doctor looked a little concerned and I'd never seen the doctor even look concerned before. So when we left, I asked, I said, well, what was that all about? And he said, well, the neighbor just said that it was just broadcast on the radio all over the city that we have Bible studies at our house for women on Thursday nights. And the broadcast said that the police will be coming next Thursday and arrest any woman that tries to come to our house. And we kept driving and I said, wow, that sounds really harsh. Do you think it's true or do you think that's just a rumor? And he said, well, normally I, I would have thought that it was probably just a rumor, but it's true. We have, you know, we have Bible studies for women on Thursday nights, and there's believers among them, new believers, and Bible studies for men on Saturday nights, and there's believers among them. But last Thursday, we had an incident. He says, you see, these the women kind of had a choice to make. The new believers uh, were not able, because of the persecution that's present in the country, were not able to be open and public about their new faith. So they had to keep quiet the new knowledge that God loves them, they had to they had to keep that secret. So when they get together once a week with other believers, they're just bursting to worship God. And the choice they had to make was, do we sing or not? In this country, it's a, it's a really hot country. I mean, it's so hot that in the hot season, people go to Dubai to cool off. But 
houses are made where a portion of the house has no walls to it. You know, it's just, there's a floor, there's a ceiling and it's just open. There's no walls. A lot of life is lived in that part of the house. And this is where they would have their Bible studies. So the idea of whether or not we should sing was important because you're kind of outside. And he says they decided, well, they had to sing, you know, once a week they're together with other believers and they're fellowshipping and they're worshiping and they have to sing. So they would sing. He said, last Thursday, there was a hand that appeared over the wall that separates the neighbor's compound. And in the hand was a phone. And so they were probably recording what we were doing. So because of that, I think the rumor, I think it's true. I think the broadcast over the radio was true. So we ran and got our errands. And by the time we came back, there was like three or four women at his house already who had been kicked out of their own homes. Their neighbors saying, wait a minute, you go to the doctor's house on Thursday. You must be going to a Bible study. And it was, and it was kind of a very humbling thing to be in the presence of what is it like to plant a church in a persecutive environment? And it increased from there. We started interviewing all of the team members and we started to see this kind of a common thread of what they would say, because they said, you know, we signed up for this team and we kind of thought that, you know, on paper, it looked good. We, we, we figured we knew what was, how it was going to go down. And that was this, we were going to come into this community. We were going to learn the language. We're going to develop friendships and hopefully the friendships will grow to the point where we can share our faith. And then hopefully prayerfully we'll have, we'll see people come to Christ. But what we didn't count on was how deeply we would fall in love with these people. And what we didn't count on was the fact that if we got to the point where they were to accept Christ as their savior, And we led them through that, we would be leading them into a life of persecution and possibly death. And you would never do that to someone that you loved unless you really, really believed in the gospel. So we had to ask ourselves, how much do we really believe this? How much do we really believe that an eternity with God is worth any amount of persecution that you could face on this earth? And that was humbling to me because. I had never had to cross that question before, you know, and in my experiences of sharing my faith, I'm thinking, man, they're, you know, if, if they were to know Christ, even their life here on earth would get better. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you're in environments where, you know, you really have to depend on the reality of an eternity with God. And that is your goal because the life here on earth is just going to get worse. Wow, that is yeah, so humbling and what a what a miracle to even just to get to be a part of that as you're just visiting for a week and getting to see real life struggles on the field, especially in closed countries with a lot of persecution. And so what were y'all able to share from this place with the security? Well, the use of the of the video that we made was pretty restricted. You know, you won't find it online. It was just for this team's use. And we were kind of nervous when we were leaving the country because we had believers' testimonies on the camera, on the files. You know, it was a, some pretty sensitive material. And, you know, we had put some of the the film and the data of just kind of generic, this is the, you know, this is the medical practice, this is cultural community stuff. And we left those cards in the camera and the other cards we kind of mixed in with our dirty underwear in the luggage in case they, they you know, if they wanted to see something, we, we had something to show them. And then we ran the batteries low on our cameras so they would only have like two or three minutes left before the batteries would die. And that was just the benign footage. So we were able to leave. Of course, they, I mean, we never had any trouble. They never asked to see anything. They didn't seem interested at that point. But later when we got back to Nairobi, we were able to, you know, produce a video for this team for them to show to their church. But it was very, you know, not online. We made DVDs and gave them DVDs and there's like numbered copies. It was very useful for them and for their purposes, but it was not a public video. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so helpful for the people that support that team to actually get to see what's happening on the ground because especially when you get to communicate back to your team while on the field like you can't you can't share that much and so uh, what a blessing it was i can imagine to see this video 
So what other stories come to mind traveling to different teams all throughout Africa, all different types of ministry teams? What other stories come to mind as y'all traveled and documented life there? Probably the capstone of my involvement with the media team was uh, the movie that we produced called The Distant Boat. And that was just this crazy endeavor that we really felt the Lord led us into because it was, you know, none of us had ever shot a movie before. So we were reinventing the wheel every day. It was kind of an amazing, amazing experience. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but it was, it was really, really fun and cool. You know, when we were doing casting for it, you know, we wanted to hire professional actors, but, you know, there really isn't all that such a thing as a professional acting pool in Kenya, because even the professional actors have other jobs. Well, at least that was the case back then. We we had a lot of fun doing the casting and the auditions. and uh, But there was one character, and that was the, the Muslim family's wife that we could not find the right person for. And as the producer, I was able to, you know, to talk among all the people that we were, we were auditioning and actually share the gospel with them. And the process was, you know, I kind of wanted to know where their level of faith was. So I would ask them and then I would, I would have the opportunity to, to share the gospel and fill in the gaps. And that was, that was really fun. But we did not find anyone for the the wife of the Muslim family. And then one day Andy calls me and she says, I found the, the perfect person, but she actually is a Muslim. Will that work? And I said, well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, we kind of, we kind of need to have a spirit of unity among on the set. And if there is a Muslim there, then they're going to be kind of against what we're doing. I'm not sure that's going to work. And Andy said, well, She's the only person that we have found. Is there any way we can make this work? And I said, well, we'll meet with her. So my wife and I met her at a coffee shop and she came all full dressed in Muslim garb. So we sat down, we started talking to her and, and we said, you know, do you, do you realize what, what kind of a movie this is? Cause it's not, not necessarily an evangelical movie, but it is a movie that is meant to, meant to bring the idea of missions to the sub-Saharan African church. So we asked, we asked her, do you, you know, are you aware of what this movie is about? And she says, well, I'm not sure, but I think it's a movie that is meant to convince Muslims to become Christians. And I said, well, I wouldn't have put it that way, but uh, you know, that's, that's the right idea. And I said, if you're a Muslim, you know, why, why would you be interested in doing, you know, taking part in a movie like this? And she says, well, I'm an actress. And usually I am asked to do things that are against my beliefs. Usually I'm asked to dress immodestly and to smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and, and do that. And I do it because I'm an actress and I got to put food on the table. In your movie, I get to be who I really am. I said, okay. I said, but what about, what about your family? You know, wouldn't your family be upset that you're involved in something like this? And she says, actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a convert. I'm from a Christian family. In fact, my mom's a pastor. They would be thrilled if I did this. <laughs> I said, all right. I guess, uh, uh, I guess then we can maybe, maybe try and make this work. So we were... She came onto the crew and we did some, we did some, I guess you could call it acting clinics beforehand. And in the evenings we would sing Swahili choruses. And sometimes we would know like the words to the first verse. And then we would, all of us would forget the words to the second verse. And she in her full Muslim garb, being a pastor's daughter, would stand up and lead us all in the other verses to the choruses because she knew what the words were. And in the course of filming, we had a lot of really, really good discussions with her. And I think afterwards she had, I don't know where she is now, but uh, she had she had spoken words about maybe going back to Christianity. I think she did at one point, but then I think maybe she went back to Islam again. So that might be a point of prayer. We can, we can pray for her. 
but that was one one cool experience of shooting the movie. Where did the idea for the movie come from? What launched the production process? Sure. Well, what, one of the things that I got to do as coordinator of the team is I would talk to kind of AIM leadership in different regions. And about once every six months or so, I would sit down with the leader and I would have this list of all the requests for media that, that we have received from their region. And they would look at the list and they would you know, kind of pick out what's important from leadership's perspective. And I was doing that in Eastern region and the, the, the Eastern region REO, our regional executive officer, looked through the list and he kind of pushed back from the table. He says, Ted, these are all great ideas. He says, but I was just thinking, is there any way we could produce something that would bend the heart of the African church towards missions? And the idea is that that's been a different story. You know, different cultures in different parts of the world have embraced the idea of missions differently. You know, Korea is a great example of a church that has really embraced the idea of missions. And it hasn't been as strong in East Africa. And they're strong in many ways, uh, but they haven't been strong in that way. So we started thinking, okay, well, maybe this is Maybe this is an awareness issue. Maybe if you were to, you know, walk into a sub-Saharan African church and say, you know, there are 900 or 1,000 unreached people groups, you know, they would be floored by that. They would be not aware that that was the case. As we started to do research, we realized, well, it's, there's something, something more going on here. And we, we started to say, well, I think the thing that we are going to address is the issue of compassion. because we think that might be what's going on here and that it is actually related to tribalism. And it kind of makes sense that the knowledge piece wouldn't be there either because knowledge and compassion go hand in hand. We learn about what we care about and what we don't care about, we tend not to know about either. And we kind of saw the effects of tribalism a lot up when we were on the volcano. The airplane is a very loud machine. And so when I, whenever I flew off the mountain, the whole mountain could hear that Ted was going somewhere and it's usually medical related. So people would come up to my wife, Lisa, and say, where's Ted going? And, you know, she would say, oh, there's a, there's a gunshot victim in this certain village. And the first question was always, is it a Samburu? And if it was a Samburu, then the response would be, oh, you guys are such a blessing. We're so thankful that you're here. But if it was a Turkana or a Gabra or any other tribe, they would say, oh, okay. And they turn around and they'd walk away. We did more research and we realized that, you know, you could kind of, from a cultural perspective, you can kind of graph the level of compassion that we have according to our sense of identity. You know, if you did that to someone in the West, you know, your compassion, you know, at the beginning of the graph is yourself. And your compassion level is high because everyone loves themselves. Then you go to like immediate family, still high. Everyone loves their kids and their sisters and their moms. And, and in our culture, once you go to like extended family, cousins, ours takes a precipitous drop at that point. Because in our culture, we're not really much, as an average, we're not really much aware of our cousins' lives, you know that's where ours takes a precipitous drop. But then it kind of levels off and we're, we care about our community and, and, and all that. And if you were to do that with a typical East African person, theirs starts high too. They love themselves. They love their immediate family. You go to extended family and theirs stays high. That's kind of the, the strength in this particular culture is that their community members, their family members, their compassion is, is really high. Um, but then you go beyond tribe and that's where theirs takes the precipitous drop and it drops pretty steeply. And then it, you know, goes out towards the expanding sense of identity, you know, country world person. So, um, so then we, we started to say, okay, well, what if we address the issue that tribalism is affecting the church's sense of mission? Well, because it's a compassion issue, you know, we can't address, you know, compassion is a value. We can't address values with facts. You know, if this was an awareness issue, we could make a documentary full of facts and you could address the issue. But since this is a value issue, facts, that they don't really touch values. Emotion 
touches, values, and you can access emotions if you tell a story. So then we realize we had to tell a story. We have to take a character that people can relate to and have that character discover something. And when that happens, then the audience makes that journey with them. So then we knew, okay, we should tell a story. We've, we had already kind of dabbled with, with drama a little bit. So then it just kind of grew and grew. And we realized that long form drama, you know, full length movies actually go well uh, culturally in, in, in Africa. So then it became a full length movie and it kind of went from there. Wow. And what kind of came from the movie? Was it produced in Swahili, any other languages? Yeah, launched in 2013. So yeah, it was it was produced in English. All the actors spoke English. And then we did a version in Swahili. And it's also subtitled in French. And, and there were other parts of the world that picked it up. I mean, we heard that it was also subtitled in Moldovan and in Spanish for some South American countries. And, and maybe even in Thai. Uh, we were talking with some people in Thai. It was used in some pretty amazing ways. I mean, Ethiopian Airlines with their new triple Boeing 777s picked it up and used it in their in-flight entertainment systems for a while. And we would get letters from like Nigerian pastors saying, we want to be your distributor in Nigeria. They probably thought we were making money with this movie. But uh, of course, the movie is free online. You can go to distantboat.com and watch it. So there's there's no money to be made. But uh, it, it had a uh, and is still having actually a pretty neat effect because, you know, we tried to address many of the roadblocks that a person faces when they are called into missions into a culture that doesn't necessarily value it as, as much. And we, we would see that even in our home church in Nairobi, uh, there were some these awesome African folks who were going into missions and the church would try and talk them out of it. You know, the church would say, you're educated. You don't need to be going into missions. So that was one of the struggles is how to, you know, how to get the church to value missions enough to support mission missionaries and to, and so when we, we had a, uh, we had a launch with, you know, several hundred African pastors in this church and we played it and you could just kind of walk around during the, during the movie as, as these different issues were, were being addressed. And some people you could tell had felt those issues before and would, would agree. And then afterwards, we even heard someone say, man, every, every obstacle that we face has been addressed here. So that was, that was cool. Even here in the States, sometimes the movie is being used in uh, mission training programs. There's a Engage Global uses it for their movie night, I think on Thursday nights when they, when they're doing a, a missions training group. Yeah. Wow, that's so awesome. And it's almost the 10-year anniversary for the distant boat. That is Yeah, yeah, we should do something. <laughs> <laughs> that is so awesome. And yeah, what a cool goal of yeah, just encouraging the African church because the African church has grown so much the past hundred years. And so growing their desire to reach Africans to reach unreached African people group is so encouraging and yeah, really cool to yeah. get to hear the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really exciting to see what's what's happening in the African church now. Yeah. That's awesome. So, what was your transition out of OFM? OFM is now called AIM Stories for our listeners. Yeah, we still have a team that travels, different outreach teams and documents photos and videos of what is happening in each place. Um, so that's currently what AIM Stories looks like today. But what was your transition out and taking on a new role with AIM? Well, we we hadn't intended to transition out, I guess. We uh, we came home and, you know, my wife is an only child of a, of a single parent. And we came back and and through various circumstances, we realized that uh, it was time for us to to come home and to care for for aging parents. So we really didn't know what we were going to do. I mean, I initially I thought I'm going to start a media company here in Minnesota, and I had some ideas, and I had bounced it off some entrepreneur friends of mine and got some really good feedback. So I was kind of excited about that, but uh, 
didn't really know what we were going to do, but we loved AIM. And so we called up AIM and, uh, and talked to the candidate director who I had had some experience with before we had tromped through Central African Republic on one of the video projects that we did and talked to him and said, kind of explained the situation and said, I, I think we need to stay here in America, but we can't live in Georgia where the U.S. office is. We kind of need to be here in Minnesota. You know, just to open up the conversation, what are the needs in the U.S. office? And he says, well, you're not going to believe this, Ted, but the biggest need we have in the U.S. office isn't in Georgia. It's in Minnesota because the recruiter, the mobilizer we have for that area retires tomorrow. And we've been praying for a year for someone to replace him. So that was some pretty clear leading into what was next. And it was neat because... I didn't start the company, uh, but we realized that the true adventure was to to stay with AIM. And it, honestly, I was a little nervous about being a mobilizer because you know when I when I was the media team leader, I had already had a reputation of being not so good with like emails and things like that. And that's kind of the impression of being a mobilizer was that you know you sat in a corner office and did email eight hours a day. But I was wrong. And it's it's a tremendously creative job and not necessarily artistically, but, you know, you have this big task of what to do. You know, you get up in the morning and what do you do that day? Well, that's that's up to you. And you have to be creative to figure out how to do the job. And it's it's probably the most creative job that that I've had, I think. And I still get to be a storyteller. When I was leading the media team, I used to I used to say that this is the funnest job in AIM because I get to be the storyteller of AIM. But as a mobilizer, you're a storyteller. Only this time, you know, it's face to face at a coffee shop instead of through mass media. So mobilizing has been has suited us well. And we come back and we've been here well since 2013 now. And uh, so it's been a long time. And you get to meet a lot of interesting people people in a lot of interesting places who God is moving in their hearts. You know, I've, I've had dinner with people on their 60 foot yachts in the Seattle Arbor and, you know, everything from that to having ridden on dog sleds to get to their house up near the Gunflint Trail in Northern Minnesota, because that's the only way to get to their house in the winter time. So everything in between it's, it's been, it's been really fun. That is so awesome. From going on yachts to riding with sled dogs, that is such an adventure. Well, I, I do need to clarify, we were riding on dog sleds, but the dog sleds were actually being pulled by snowmobiles. So <laughs> you can clarify that. <laughs> that is so awesome. Yeah, I, I live in Minnesota, but my region goes all the way out to uh, Oregon and Washington and even Alaska. Yes. So if you're in that area and you want to get to know Ted... Here he is. And um, he has lots of amazing stories that he hasn't even shared with us today. But Ted, we can't leave this podcast without talking about your need that you've been searching for a distinct position for a couple of years now, the position of a boat captain. And so <laughs> I feel like with the new audience listening, we have to briefly share about that. Absolutely. Well, we are, you know, Missions is becoming a very creative, we've talked about creativity a, a little bit, and missions itself is requiring a lot more creativity than it used to be. One of the, the really interesting endeavors that we're, we're doing is we're, we're, you know, we're looking for a boat captain to bring in a ferry service to an island nation. And uh, it's an incredibly interesting opportunity. Uh, we're looking for someone who is a boat captain and can train other people to to do the work of of being a boat captain. And they will need to speak French. They need to have passion of the gospel in their hearts. Uh, so yeah, if you know anybody like that, but there's you know there's all kinds of other people too. We're looking for underwater welders. It's just it's crazy what what we're looking for these days. Yes. So whether you're talking to a boat captain or anyone just considering joining God and his mission among the nations, specifically among African unreached people groups. What would you say to them considering joining God and what advice would you share? Well, being a storyteller, I like to think about what is it going to be like in heaven 
And, and I think, you know, I think that we're going to be telling stories in heaven and I'm going to be hearing stories from, you know, all the people that are famous, but I think some of the more interesting stories are probably going to be from people that we hadn't heard of before here. And I think, man, how long is it going to take to hear everyone's story? And and I have no idea, but let's just throw out 10,000 years before you hear everyone's story. But you think about it, they're going to want to hear your story too. So you're going to be telling your story over and over again for 10,000 years. So you think about what's my story going to be like? You know, is it going to be that I finally, you know, got the thing that I wanted to buy? And how is that going to sound over and over again for 10,000 years in the context of heaven? Or is it going to be, you know, I, I think the stories that are going to be awesome are going to be the times where we are totally, totally dependent on God and can see his power through us as we go through life. And of course, you know, stories aren't a story unless there's some kind of risk involved. And oftentimes we are, we are saddled by a fear of, of risk. So my advice would be, you know, have a 10,000 year perspective as you consider what God has for you, how God has made you and, and consider what your story is going to be like as you tell it for 10,000 years. (laughs) Wow. What a perspective. And yeah, I just love your heart for stories and yeah, that that can be the thing that encourages someone to consider that for eternity. That is so incredible. And so Ted, I am so thankful just to hear a little bit of your story today from living in a volcano to medical trips on your airplane to starting the media ministry of Africa Inland Mission now called AIM Stories and a producing a movie. I mean, wow. I bet people listening didn't realize that being a missionary, you could also be a film producer. I bet that never came to mind. <laughs> and so we're just so thankful to hear your story today. And if you're listening and you're interested in learning more about AIM Air, more about our media ministry team today, please reach out to us. I can connect you with Ted. And you can reach out to us on our website or on our Instagram, and we would love to connect with you. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Inlander podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe. Inlander is a production of Africa Inland Mission, a Christian mission agency dedicated to outreach among Africa's remaining unreached peoples. For more about our work and how you can get involved, visit us at aimus.org or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. For additional information and resources, see the show notes. And thanks again for listening.